Thanks, Taylor. Um, how about we pray, hey? Father in heaven, as we approach Romans 4, I pray now that you'll give us clear minds and open hearts to hear what you have to say to us. I ask that you will help us to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and place our faith in you. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. It's lovely to see some new faces. Uh, lovely to see some old ones as well. Um, when I was in my late teens, I ran into a bit of a problem. I started to get uncomfortable every time I went out in public with my dad. Now, I want to be clear from the offset, my dad is not a weirdo. Um, he's an alright guy. There's nothing really wrong with him. He's not strange. He's not rude. He never dressed weird, or at least not as weird as any other old person might. The reason I was uncomfortable when I went out in public with him is that I looked like him. Now, I don't know whether you've had this experience, maybe you don't look like your parents at all, and so your question is actually whether or not you're adopted. Um, but for me, I've never had that question. I knew, I knew that I was related to this man. Because over a number of years, a bunch of people had come up to me and they'd said to me, gee, you look like your dad. I'm just like, what? And I looked at my dad, I looked at me, and I was like, are you trying to insult me? <laughs> I was hyper, hyper conscious of the fact that I had the family resemblance. Now, when it comes to families, there are some things, I'm sure you'll agree, that instantly mark people out as related. Uh, it may be your appearance, it might be the things that you say, the way that you say them, the way that you move your hands or something like that. There are things that mark you out clearly as belonging to the family. And when it comes to God's family, it's no different. And in today's passage, what we see is the family likeness, front and centre. What marks out the family of God is not appearance, it's not mannerisms, it's not the things that you say or how you do the washing up. What marks somebody as belonging to the people of God is faith. And that's why we see in chapter 3, verse 28, what does it say there? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And here's your key phrase. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The thing that brings you into relationship with God is not ethnicity, it's faith. And that is good news for us. Because what it means for us is that membership in God's family, it doesn't depend on who you descended from. It depends on what you do with the, God news, the good news that God proclaims to you. And it means that absolutely anybody, so long as they have faith, can be a part of the family. But, spoilers, just so we're clear on what we're talking about here, you want to be part of this family. Because if you are, then you are granted, in verse 6 there, the blessing of God. You're not going to have any teenage angst about wanting to be belonging to this family, because instead of facing God's judgment... There in verse 13, what you receive is God's promise. A promise that you will one day inherit the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tackle the text today in three stages. And we're going to look at the family members, and then the family inheritance, and then finally the family faith. And at the end there will be a brief invitation for those of you to join our family, uh, for those of you who haven't yet. So let's start with our first point, the family members. When we look at the family members and try to understand the family, you have to start with the father. And the father of God's family, at least humanly speaking, is Abraham. You know that song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons have a father. That, that, that's the sort of Abraham that we're talking about. He's the guy. Now, 
The reason we're tracing our ancestry back to Abraham is important is because he establishes for us how the family does. Understanding who he is helps us understand who we are. And that's particularly important for Paul who's writing this letter because if you remember in the last couple of chapters, he has said some pretty provocative things. Things that would have run counter to the Jewish understanding of Abraham, the Jewish understanding of the faith and the family that they saw and understood and thought they were a part of. And so for Paul, it is extremely important that he establishes who Abraham is and shows us that what he has been saying to us all along is is what Abraham believed. And it's what Abraham stood for. And it's what Abraham agrees with rather than contradicts. And so he asks us a question there in chapter 4, verse 1. And he asks, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? And he goes on and he he explains. He says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Well, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now remember from last week, justification, that big word that we learned, Justification is the legal declaration of innocence. It means that you and I, the means by which we are saved from the wrath of God, um, is by God's declaration. And and as we learn all the way through chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we can't be justified by works. We will be found guilty if that was the case. We will not be found innocent. And so what we needed was God the judge to make a legal ruling for us made true on the basis of Jesus' blood sacrifice, that we are considered no longer guilty, but innocent. And so what Paul is doing here is he is tracing the family tree all the way back to the forefather, the one from whom the whole Jewish nation came. And he says to us, even Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it, that is to say his faith, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't earn it, didn't do works to make him righteous. It was granted to him as a gift. And that's why he says there in verse 4, his little illustration. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now that makes a lot of sense. Right, when you think about it. Because nobody goes up to their employer after payday and says, thank you, thank you for giving me my income. I didn't deserve it. I didn't know it was coming. But I'm so glad that you've blessed me with this money. Thank you, thank you. Nobody does that, right? Because they've earned that money. That money is theirs by right. You don't say something like that. But Abraham, Abraham didn't get justified by his works. He was the one who there in verse 5 believed in the one who justifies the ungodly. And and don't miss that. What Paul is doing here, he is taking Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the one whom the Jews held up as the gold standard of righteousness, and he's calling him ungodly. He's saying that he needed God's justification as well, that he couldn't earn it. Abraham wasn't righteous. Abraham was counted righteous. And if you don't understand that one crucial fact about the father, then you will not understand the family that he's born. But once we do, once we understand the father, we can then understand his family, which is the second sub-point there. 
In verses 6 to 8, Paul introduces us to a quote from the Psalms that speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And we see there that our lawless deeds are forgiven, our sins are covered, um, and our sin is no longer counted against us. And all this, not because we did anything, but because we believed in him who justifies the ungodly. And it's this blessing that God extends to Abraham and his offspring. And so naturally, Paul wants to ask the question then in verse 9, who is the blessing for? The circumcised? Because so far we've seen a a, a reference to Abraham and then a quote from David. Two of them, they're both Israelites. Does this mean that the blessing they're talking about is only for the Jews? Because somebody's bound to be sitting there going, oh, it's clearly a Jewish blessing. And so he asks, what is the blessing? Who is the blessing for? Is it for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? And you've got to remember the context here, right? Because Paul, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's establishing for us why the gospel of salvation is available not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And so to establish this, he actually asks a really strange and maybe socially awkward question. He asks when Abraham was circumcised. So I don't want you to, for me just to have all the fun, I want you to be included too. A question for the person next to you and you as well, 30 seconds. Why does it matter when Abraham was circumcised? I'll give you a couple of moments to discuss that with each other now. Awesome. I reckon that's enough time to at least whet your appetite. um, I'm not going to feed back with you guys. I'm just going to jump straight in. Let me answer the question. The reason that it matters when Abraham was circumcised is because circumcision was one of the key marks of the family of Abraham. Now, you've got to remember back to chapter 2. What are the two things that Paul uses to sum sum up the, the Jewish confidence in their salvation? Well, it was the law and circumcision. And so what Paul is trying to show here is that the distinguishing mark of the family is not actually circumcision, it's faith. That's the thing that makes you righteous. That's the thing that brings you into relationship with God. And so that's why the timeline matters. And so we're told there in verses 10 and 11 that Abraham was circumcised after his faith had been counted as righteousness and that his circumcision was merely a seal of that which he had already received when he was uncircumcised. You see, if circumcision had preceded the faith, then God's offer of righteousness by faith would have only been available to the Jews. But as it is, verse 11, God's purpose for Abraham was that he would encompass all of the nations under his blessing. God had a reason for doing things this way. Have a look at verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So that's the Gentiles. And then verse 12, 
and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Jew, Gentile, it didn't matter. Whether you were circumcised or not, doesn't matter. So long as you had faith, you could be counted righteous as Abraham was, and count Abraham, therefore, as your father. Now, you might be wondering at this point, why is it so important to figure out whether or not you can call Abraham your dad? And the answer is that it helps us to know how to divide the family inheritance. This is point two. Now, when my sister and I were little kids, we spent a day in the school holidays, it's probably pretty rainy like today, and we systematically went around the house and we labelled everything in the house with our names so that when our parents died, they knew who got what. We were loving children. <laughs> Even at a young age, we were keenly aware of the family inheritance. And the family of God, well, it's no different because it too has an inheritance. And verse 13 here tells us what it is. It says that God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would one day be heir of the world. It's a pretty big promise, but what even is that heir of the world? Well, we don't see this phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. And so what we can gather is that this is the summary phrase that Paul has coined to bring together all of the various promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, they're the three big ones. Um, and he's brought them all together in this one phrase. Now, some context from Genesis 12. We actually know that the promise was originally threefold. And it involved three things. Abraham would be given land, the promised land. He'd be given offspring, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And then thirdly, he'd be given blessing. A blessing by which he would then bless the nations around him. So what's happened here is Paul has taken those three things, he's put it in the blender, and he's swirled it all around, and the picture that comes out is this picture of a nation descended from Abraham, ruling the world in benevolence and blessing. It's a beautiful picture, and as inheritances go, that's pretty sweet. I mean, I'd settle for a house deposit, my dad's DVDs, right? But God promises Abraham something that beggars belief. He promises him the world, and if you get the world, then you get the DVDs thrown in. And so this is sort of like a, a shut up and take my money sort of promise. Uh, except the key thing is that you can't buy it. Look at verse 13 again. How does the fulfillment of the promise come about? Well, it doesn't come through the law. You can't earn it. Instead, it comes through the righteousness of faith. And Paul gives a reason for this in verse 14. He says, for if it is the adherents of the law, that is to say the Jews, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now let me give you a paraphrase. What he's saying is, if the promise depended on keeping the law, then faith means nothing and the promise would never be fulfilled. Now why is that? Well, he explains in the next verse, in verse 15. He says, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So as you look at that verse, the reason Paul gives us that the promise can't be fulfilled by keeping the law is because we can't keep the law. We transgress the law, and in fact we will keep doing so. And so if we want any hope of receiving the promise that God has made, it needs to be based on something else. We need a guarantee 
And that's why in verse 16, God grounds his promise on grace and so guarantees it to Abraham and all his offspring. Because now it doesn't depend on our performance, it depends on God's power and faithfulness. Now, I've been around a long time, enough, enough at least to know that inheritances are never guaranteed. People can change the will, people can contest the will, uh, the courts can rule against you. Uh, anything that you thought you might have received can be taken away from you. There is always a measure of uncertainty. And so what God offers here is incredible. He gives to you a guarantee, a certainty, that what God promises He will deliver because it rests on His grace and not on our works. There are no strings attached. What He says He will do because that is the nature of our God. And so I want to reiterate at this point something that I said last week. Roman Catholicism doesn't offer you this. What it offers you is uncertainty because it takes the promise, the fulfillment of the promise, which is based on grace, and it places it back on your own works. You've got to go to the Eucharist. You've got to confess each year. You've got to do penance to make sure that you remain in relationship with God. Otherwise, what happens is you've got this question that just sits in the back of your head all the time. Am I saved? Like, like really, truly, am I saved? But the beautiful thing about this, the beautiful thing about Abraham and his family is that they have a guarantee. They don't have that fear. And that's because the family inheritance, it depends on faith rather than on works. And that leads us finally to the third heading, the family trait. And we're going to spend a bit of time here because so far we've looked at who's in the family and what those family members will inherit. <coughs> But now we actually want to focus in on the thing that defines and distinguishes the family. The thing that includes us in the family and gives us access to that promise that God made to Abraham and his offspring. And of course I'm talking about faith. Now we've already talked a lot about faith, but up until now I've kind of assumed you, you knew what I meant by it. Uh, and so now's the time we get to define it. And we're going to do that by considering Abraham. And we're going to see who... He is and what his faith looks like, the one whose scripture upholds as the paradigm of faith, the one in whose footsteps we're to follow. Uh, but before we do that, I want to turn it back to you. And with the person next to you, I want you to um, answer the following question. How would you define faith? Give you a couple of moments. having too much fun. It's time to end this. Um, faith. How you define faith is important because if you get faith wrong, it's sort of like getting the adoption papers wrong. You think you're in the family, you think the inheritance is waiting until one very rude moment, you'll be shocked because all of a sudden you realise you never qualified in the first place. So we need to get it right. Now the thing to get about faith is that faith is objective. What I mean by that is faith is defined by its object. Faith is objective. It's defined by its object. So, for example, I had faith in the train or the bus and its safety to get me to uni today. I have faith in what my lecturer teaches me to be true. 
I have faith in the chair that I'm currently sitting on. Faith has an object. Um, and so today I just want to point out to you that you have exercised faith in a number of objects today, and not once has it been a weird supernatural experience. Faith is an everyday marketplace kind of word. The problem, of course, is that ever since the Enlightenment, faith has slowly become subjective. It's no longer grounded on objects out there. It's all in here. And so faith in our world has started to mean wishful thinking. It basically has come to mean like some sort of groundless, irrational belief that has no supporting evidence whatsoever. But the thing to understand is that's not how the Bible uses faith. When it uses the word faith, it means it in the sense of trusting or depending or relying on something. And the reason those words are really good synonyms for faith is because they point to faith's object. They point outside of yourself and your own subjective experience. They point to what is trustworthy. They point to what is reliable. They point to what is dependable. In other words, faith is, can be, and is rational, grounded, and reasonable. And so this is how Paul considers faith. Now cast your eyes down there to verse 21 of the passage. Using Abraham as an example, this is what he says faith is. Faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Now the dynamic of faith is really simple here. It's really just two things. First, God speaks. He makes promises, gives us guarantees. He tells us about himself, tells us about us, tells us about our world. And then second, after God speaks, we believe him. When we hear him speaking, we listen. We take him at his word. We don't doubt it. And we will trust that he will do what he says he will do. And, and that is all there is to it. The dynamic of faith. God speaks, we believe. He makes a promise. We believe that he will follow through on that promise. And this is what Abraham, the father of our family, models for us. So let's have a look at the dynamic of faith in Abraham's life. First, what does God promise him? Well, let's have a look there in verse 17. God's promise is lifted straight out of Genesis 17 verse 5. And God promises to Abraham that I have made you the father of many nations. Now, notice the tense there. The translators haven't made a boo-boo. God is speaking in the past tense at the point where Abraham had no children. So God is speaking as though this thing has already happened. Now we see the promise again there at the end of verse 18. He says, so shall your offspring be. Now to fully grasp what's going on here, this quotation in verse 18, it's, it's worth seeing in its context. So it comes from Genesis chapter 15. So if you can, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to look at the first couple of verses in Genesis chapter 15. Right at the beginning of the Bible. Awesome. Let's read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Notice that God is speaking here, the word of the Lord. What does he say? This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. There's the quote. But look at what happens next. Look at verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the line, right? That's the line that Paul has been quoting all this time. We saw it in chapter 3, we saw it now in chapter 4. This is the moment in history where the family of Abraham comes into being. The moment where Abraham steps out in faith and he begins to walk a trail that the rest of his family will follow after him. And notice, the dynamic of faith is here. God speaks and Abraham listens. But I want to get a, a stronger handle on just what's going on here for Abraham. So flip back over to Romans chapter 4. I want to make some observations about Abraham's faith. Back in chapter 4. First, I want you to see that the conditions under which Abraham had faith were not favorable. Have a look there at verse 19. Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. Now, cool story, in September, my grandma turns 100. And let me tell you, she ain't having a baby anytime soon, right? Neither is Abraham. Let's compound the problem. His wife, Sarah, she's 90 and she's barren. And yet we see there in verse 20, despite all of these unfavorable circumstances, what does Abraham do? Well, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he what? What does it say there? That he held on desperately wishing? No. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, Abraham had reasons not to believe, but he did anyway. Why? Was he being irrational? I mean, in ordinary circumstances, I'd say absolutely if a medical professional came, somebody trained at this illustrious institution of ACU, and if a medical professional came and told me something similar, I'd laugh at him. But the reality is the one who is speaking is not a medical professional. The one who is speaking is God. The God who, in verse 17, is described as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham had faith, and that faith grew strong despite everything around him screaming to the contrary, because he knew in whom he believed. Now later on in the semester, you'll see this in our Bible studies in Hebrews 11. Abraham did it, Noah did it, Moses did it. Every single one of them heard God speak. And the first thing they did was look around at all of the reasons why what God said could not, humanly speaking, be possible. And they believed anyway. Was it because they were ignoring the facts? No. It's because they held on to the one fact that trumped every other fact. And that fact was the power of their God, the object in whom they had placed their faith. Now, before I move on, I want to briefly address the issue of doubt. Because talking about faith can actually be quite confronting. Uh, and I don't think any of us really ever feel like we have the heroic faith of Abraham. I mean, his example, rather than encouraging us, might actually convince us that we're out of the family. Yeah? Because how many of us can ever say that we have never wavered in our faith? And so I want to say two things about doubt from this passage. The, the, the first is we've got to stop thinking about faith in terms of quantity. Uh, I heard this in a Bible study last week. I didn't have enough faith. 
And when people say that, the assumption is that the success or failure of whatever it is they're having faith in, it depends on the strength of their faith. But Romans 4 shows us that it is faith's object, who you put your faith in, that matters. And it's for that reason, actually, that in the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus can say, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, get up and be moved. Nothing you do is impossible. And the reason for that is because it has nothing to do with how hard you're believing. It's got everything to do with who you believe in. And so if you want proof of that, try sitting down without your chair. No amount of faith is going to hold you up if that chair isn't there. The reason you stay seated now is not because of the strength of your faith. But some of you may have significant doubts at the moment of your chair and be really anxious. I don't know how you guys you know, live your life, but okay, cool. The reason that you stay seated is because of the strength of the object of your faith. I was thinking about whether or not I could actually demonstrate to you what trying to sit down purely based on faith would be, but I figured, you know, that would just be insulting for all of us, so I didn't go there. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing that we need to ask is what Paul means when he says no belief made him waver. Uh, what he doesn't mean is that Abraham never experienced doubt. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham questions God. In Genesis chapter 16, in desperation, he fathers a child with one of his servants, Hagar. And then in Genesis chapter 17, he laughs when God reiterates his promise. And so when Paul says Abraham never wavered, he's trying to do something very different than give a blow-by-blow account of how Abraham doubted and then didn't doubt and doubted and then didn't doubt. What he's trying to do for us is he's trying to summarize the trajectory of Abraham's life. Here is a man whose life was patterned by a continual, growing, persevering, returning trust in the promises of God. Doubt is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it's what you do with it. If you let it grow, it will crush you, and you will walk out on the family. But if in those moments of doubt you recall to mind the one in whom you place your faith, the one who brings life from the dead and makes the impossible possible, then your doubts will be put in their proper place. They might linger, but your object is firm. And if you do that, you too will grow strong in your faith like Abraham did. Holding on to the object. It's got nothing to do with how hard you believe. Because faith isn't a work. So, those are some things about doubt. But we still have to finish our examination of the family trait. Let's have a look at the family's faith. We've seen the father's faith. What about the family's faith? Because I've got a question. Does this mean that if we are following after our father Abraham, having faith, does that mean that we have to trust that we too, when we turn 100, will have a child? I don't think so. And so what I want to say to you is that the faith of, the, of Abraham's offspring, and this is my attempt to be cool and trendy, although I'm probably still 10 years behind, the faith of Abraham's offspring is the same same but different. Okay? Let's go with the same same. It's the same same because Abraham models for us the dynamic of faith. He shows us who we have faith in. It's the God of the Bible. He also shows us how to respond when God speaks to us. We trust Him, remembering and recalling to mind that He is able. But it's more than just that, because it's not just that Abraham's example to us is the same. God's response to our faith 
is the same as his response to Abraham's faith. This is where we really get to the the important crux of the passage because this is where it hits home for us. Open your Bibles there and look, if if they're closed, and look at um, chapter 4, verse 23. Picking up on that quote from Genesis 15, he says, But the words it was counted to him who um, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So God will take our faith, and just like he did to Abraham, he will count our faith as righteousness. But here's where the but different comes in. Same, same, but different. It's the same promise we're trusting in, but now it has a specificity that it didn't have before, that it couldn't have had before, because Jesus wasn't yet on the scene. He hadn't died and risen again. Back there in verse 24, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, Jesus was the means by which God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. Because when he died for our trespasses and when he was raised for our justification, he was raised so that we might be assured of a place in Abraham's family and that through our faith that promise will become a reality. Jesus became the basis upon which God could justify the ungodly and yet he himself remained just. And so now when we place our faith in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist, he does just that. In Abraham's case, he took a barren womb and he made it fruitful. In Jesus' case, he took the corpse of Jesus and he raised it to life again. That God, that same God is going to take us who are dead in sins and make us alive in Christ. And he will bring into existence a family of faith that follows in the footsteps of Abraham that had never existed before. And then, having been declared righteous by faith, we are made heirs of the promise that we too will one day inherit the world. This is what happens when we place our faith in the God who promises to save us. This is the wonder of the gospel. That you who faced the wrath of God might have the blessing of Abraham by exercising the same faith in the same God and receive the same righteousness. So I just want to end very briefly with a question to all of you. Remember that that, that verse right at the end of the chapter. These words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So I want to finish with a question. Has it been counted to you as well? Have you responded to the words of God by placing your faith in him? You see, God has spoken. Will you trust? Will you join the family? I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your mercy that you seated the promise not on works of the law but on your own grace so that we who put our faith in you might receive it. I pray for all of us that we will remember that it is not the strength of our faith, it is not the works, it's nothing that we do or contribute that brings us our justification and makes us heirs of your promise. Instead, help us remember that it is you taking our faith and counting it to us as righteousness that brings us into the family and assures us of inheriting the promise. We thank you for this reality. We pray that we won't forget it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.